1: In the beginning of the 3rd century AD, the writer Athenos of Naucratis wrote on his manuscript, Typnosophistae, which means Philosophers at Dinner, the following passage. But Archestratus, that writer so curious in all that relates to cookery, in his Gastrology, speaks thus of the Bonito. Towards the end of autumn, when the Pleiades has hidden its light, you can cook bonito whatever way you please why need i teach you for then you cannot spoil it even if you wish but if you should desire moscus my friend to know by what recipe you best may cook it take the green leaves of fig trees and fresh marjoram but not too much no cheese or other nonsense but merely Wrap it in the fig leaves and tie it around with a small piece of string. Then bury it beneath the glowing ashes, judging by instinct of the time it takes to be completely done without being burned. And if you wish, have the best of their kind. Take care to get them from Byzantium. Or, if they come from any sea near that, they'll not be bad. But if you go down lower and pass the Straits into the Aegean Sea... They're quite a different thing, in flavor worse, as well as size, and merit far less praise. Who exactly was Archestratus? From literary fragments, just as the one I bread. I feel I want to know and understand the man and his motives, and learn everything about him. Of course these questions about uh, his life story had me puzzled for ages. I wanted to write an episode for a while now, but the more I looked for information about his life and works, the more unanswered questions I have had. And admittedly countless uh, classicists, historians and food writers have been puzzled through the ages too with the same burning questions. I'm Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, a podcast all about archaeogastronomy. On each episode, we examine the foods, recipes, ingredients, and their history from the ancient world, be it classical Greece, ancient Roman Empire, the Egyptian Kingdom, or Mesopotamia, or the glorious Persia. Or we examine legendary culinary figures from the past. And today, we're going to see such a figure. The legendary Archestratus of Syracuse. The first foodie hero, the first foodie hipster of the ancient world. And, of course, our modern world, too. Okay, so let's um, give it a bit of a context here. Let's understand what we're dealing with. Imagine a friend... The worst foodie hipster friend you have. The one that visits uh, the local farmer's market every weekend. The one that goes to Borough Market as if on a religious pilgrimage at least once a month. And also, on top of that, knows every single Vietnamese store in Hackney and all the South American food stalls in Seven Sisters' Intermarket. He also seems to know the new food trends and all the new and the ingredients, and also reads the reviews on Eater for the cheapest eats at the outskirts of Southeast London for some reason. As if, as if we'll ever visit Southeast. Anyway, well, your foodie friend has nothing going on compared to Orchestratus, our subject today. If you thought your friend was annoying for visiting the Mercado de San Martín San Sebastián or San Miguel in Madrid and La Boquería Market in Barcelona, or the Mercato delle embere in Bologna, or the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, or the Varvacius Market in Athens, spending hours looking at fish that cannot buy, well, you know the friend I mean, right? The one who watched all the episodes of Anthony Boudin's Parts Unknown, and can quote all his lines. Well, our dude orchestratus was a lot, a lot worse. New tastes, the freshest ingredients so local and seasonal and simple, that even the inhabitants of the nearest town wouldn't have heard them. Well, Archestratus would have been their first, straight to the local fishermen, begging them for fish. The world's first gourmand, the hipster-foodie-traveller, the tourist who went to every food market on every city he visited. Only he accomplished your feat 2,500 years ago and all by sale Firstly let's uh, go back let's rewind and lose ourselves in the Hellenic world of 450 BCE When one thinks of classical ancient Greece philosophy democracy theatre architecture and the amazing temples is what normally springs to mind, and not cookery books. Certainly, Greek culture and the food style of the period, alongside with the famous symposiums, fascinated academics and foodists alike throughout the centuries. But beyond that, we don't know much of that part of their culture when we know so much more for about everything else. Especially considering that we have elevated uh, food culture into such a status in our modern world. It's ubiquitous across our TVs and um, our magazines and everywhere else. So today, in this episode, I would like to try and address this a little bit and bring uh, some uh, much needed balance. The ancient Greek world of the 5th century BC was vast. For the standards of the time, Encompassed numerous sites across the continent of Europe, in the Balkans and around the Black Sea, South Italy and Sicily, the coast of France and the coast of Spain, alongside North Africa, the Middle East. Generally, you get the idea, all over the Mediterranean and the Black Seas. It stretched beyond the limits of modern Greece, which seems uh, small by comparison. And I don't mean here by actual size, which would be obvious, the obvious way. Let's not forget here that uh, Greek colonies were small city-states controlling a limited amount of coastal land and perhaps some farms and uh, some farmland around it. But more importantly, the ancient Greek world was much bigger in a way that incorporated a multitude of landscapes, climates, peoples, tribes. Ancient Greeks were cosmopolitans with influences drawn from a wide Mediterranean background, taking in a diversity and a medley of ideas, unrestricted by the topography of their Hellenic mainland. Travel seems to have always been held in high regard, which is no surprise for peoples rather renowned for their curiosity and innovation. Many tales and myths, such as Jason and the Golden Fleece, celebrated the benefits to be gained from travelling. Travel could be an expensive business, and of course hospitality was usually provided by social peers for free, at least for the higher classes. In such a world, it's not a surprise that ingredients, flavors, techniques all blended together to excite the upper-class citizens and scandalize the philosophers who moralized or lamented the good old days. All this luxury had the rich merchant class and the influential citizens of uh, 400 BC antagonize and outcompete each other as to whom would host the most brilliant symposium. This was the one main meal of the day, which started early in the evening. Drinking and talking went through the night, as well as music and poetry and sex sometimes, which was part of the good all-nighter. Men reclined on couches, each with a small table. A host would often hire a cook and waiters for the occasion. We see these Greeks grew rich and wealthy from trading with Egypt, Asia, Carthage, and were accustomed with the luxurious lifestyle, which was frowned upon back in the philosophy schools of Athens. I will post uh, some maps and some pictures of um, ancient Greek sites and cities across the Mediterranean. Um, especially the main big ones. So you can see where the trade was uh, happening. And I'll post all this on my Twitter and Patreon page. I will also post some links about um, the ancient trade in the Mediterranean world and the wider context in order to understand the trips of Archestratus. As an example of the vast trade networks that existed, Consider the following passage from an ancient comedy showing off uh, the trade that was happening in the port of Piraeus in Athens. Silphium and ox hide from Cyrene. From Hellespont, mackerel and every saltfish. From Thessaly, porridge and ox ribs. The Syracusans send us pigs and cheese. Eels from Rhegium, Incense from Syria. Cypress wood from Crete. Africa has ivory and roads has dreamy raisins and figs. From Euboea come pears and fat apples. Slaves from Phrygia. The Paphlagonians send chestnuts and glossy almonds. Phoenicia provides wheat and dates. Carthage sends rugs and fancy pillows. Alongside the trade in foods and other commodities, people travel too. And usually voluntary, to find a living. That includes cooks for Syrian bakers and Sicilian chefs were already widely sought after. In this interconnected world of the ancient Med, we find Archestratus, then, a Sicilian who circumnavigated the world to satisfy his hunger. And even lower appetites, as a Roman scholar said once quite disparagingly. He was, though, an inveterate traveller. How else uh, could he have found out about the specialties of all these places, of all these small seaside cities, over 50 of them, from Sicily to the Black Sea? And remarkably, what he writes uh, rings true, as sometimes the specialties are exactly the same now as they were 2,400 years ago which in itself is incredible, to be honest. Other specialties, of course, change by time. And in Orchestratus, we see his love for the lesbian wine, for the taste of lesbian wine, and his praise for the aroma of the Phoenician wine that came from Piblos in um, modern-day Lebanon. Places that they were really, really uh, famous for the wine in the, in the ancient world, and... Um, We know it from other writers and travellers that it produced a great quality of wine. We find the following passage on Athenaeus, quoting Archestratus When a libation to the gods you make, let your wine worthy be, and ripe, and old, whose hoary locks droop his purple lake, such as in Lesbos' secret isle is sold. Phoenicia doth a generous liquor bear. But still, the lesbian I would rather quaff. For though through age the former rich appear, you'll find its fragrance will with use go off. We know almost nothing about Archestratus to be honest. We're clutching straws here. Aside from that, he was a Sicilian Greek from Yella. Uh, Um, a town in um, the eastern coast of Sicily, or Syracuse, which was one of the biggest, most important Greek uh, colonies and also a dependent city-state in the ancient world. Syracuse is best known as the city of Archimedes, the famous Greek mathematician and inventor. It is located in the southeast corner of the island of Sicily. Originally, it was settled about 734 BCE, by Corinthians, led by the aristocrat Archaeus. The nucleus of the settlement was the small island of Ortigia. There and around the mainland, the settlers found the land fertile. The island itself had natural harbours and spring water. So the city flourished and in turn founded new colonies, and all in all grew rich, prosperous and powerful. Eventually, the aristocratic elite was ousted and democracy was established, led by Hippocrates. With the defeat of the Carthaginians at the Battle of Himera at 480 BCE, he brought a period of peace which brought a golden age for Syracuse. The city gained a reputation as a cultural centre, and literary greats as Aeschylus and Simonides and Pindar all spent time there. At the time, it was considered as one of the biggest and most important Greek cities. The walls enclosed an area of 300 acres at least, and the population of the city and the surrounding areas was approximately 250,000, and it rivaled the population of Athens. But Archestratus, all that he wrote, is now lost. But we know he had a remarkable and unique poem Called the Life of Luxury, or Hidipathia. The poem is dated at around 300 BC, and what we know of the poem is mostly from Athenaeus, from his work Diopneusophistai, or Philosophers at Dinner, which was composed in about AD 200. As this is our only source for Akesatu's work. Uh, This in itself uh, is telling. There are many lost works of ancient literature, poetry, drama, and so on. And these, they are usually referenced and quoted by multiple ancient authors. However, this lack of interest um, demonstrates the status of food and recipe books. They weren't high literature, And therefore, they weren't uh, carefully preserved for for posterity. Unfortunately for us. I'd probably give my right arm for the chance to glance upon the book on bread-making by Chrysippus of Tiana, or uh, read the book on saltfish by Ephthidimus of Athens. Sadly, both are lost in the mists of time, and only known through second-hand passing accounts from other authors. So as we see, uh, most uh, most all of cookery books from ancient Greece are lost, they don't exist. What's happening here with Archestratus is that uh, The Life of, of Luxury was written in verse. It was a poem after all. Which, um, firstly, it gives us reason to believe that uh, it was a herd literature, so that is something that is recited uh, to and associated with upper-class citizens and their banquets and symposiums. It was not a hand-on-cookery book, like a manual or a cookery book nowadays, an instruction manual for the kitchen. And as such, we generally see a contrast between Archestratus' advice for good and elegant living and the grinding hard work of the peasant in Hesiod's works and days. Hesiod was an ancient Greek poet, active between 750 and 650 BCE. He was one of the earliest Greek poets, often called the father of didactic poetry. The father of history, Herodotus, credits him and Homer with giving the Greeks their gods. Hesiod's Works and Days is a didactic poem at its center is a farmer's almanac, in which Hesiod instructs his brother in the agricultural arts, with extensive moralizing advice on how he should live his life. It is best known for its origin of the toil and pain that define the human condition. From the fragments of life of a luxury we have, it seems uh, it was mimicking Hesiod's work works and days, but in a very playful, funny, and entertaining way for the symposiums of the upper classes. And this playfulness is what probably caught the eye of Athenos and seduced him to quote Archestratus into 62 passages, the fragments that survive with us to this day. Now contrast this with the fate of Mythaikos, who was an influential cook of the ancient world, influential enough to outrage Plato, the most famous of philosophers, but... Because he wrote in prose, he isn't mentioned or quoted much in the ancient world, so we have nothing of his works, again, surviving to our modern age. From uh, these few fragments, we can presume that Archestratus was not a lowly chef, since uh, chefs were unlikely to be sufficiently educated to write an epic-style poem. He had, though, knowledge of quality produce, and combinations of flavors and use of heat in cooking. And certainly use this knowledge, alongside with his vast and numerous travels, to get the freshest ingredients, so he can compose his poem for both um, learning and entertaining purposes. As I mentioned before, the cook was a low-status job. Nevertheless, the best chefs operated in a competitive mode, being hired out together with a brigade of assistants to the home of the rich, who in turn they were competing with each other. Quality and fame mattered to chefs. Consider the following fragment from an Athenian comedy of the fourth century B.C. of the playwright Dionysius, which is called "The Lawmaker." Anyone can prepare dishes, carve meat, boil up sauces and blow on the fire. Even a mere commis. But the chef is something else. To understand the place, the season, the man giving the meal, the guest, and what fish to buy, that is not a job for just anyone. It certainly rings true today, and it seems to have been the way the chefs thought of themselves back then too. Don't you recognize uh, certain chefs on this passage? Comedy might is, but it's an appropriate place for food and cooking to be commented upon. After all, cooking is entertainment too. Even more so today. Television is a wash with food programs. You can see the comedy. You can understand it if you have watched any of the zillion of food programs on TV. For example, the cooking program MasterChef when the contestants toil away and uh, cut themselves and burn themselves and they go to a restaurant for some professional experience and they get um, all messy and um, the burnt food and so on. Or if you watched um, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Rightness, for example. I mean, it's hilarious what's happening there. Life of a cook in a kitchen is always on the verge of comic, and must have been true in the ancient world too. You see, all the complex and all the menial skills are combined, and there's a sharp contrast between the heat of the kitchen, in both literal and metaphorical sense, and the calm of the banquet where the food is presented. And that was always ripe for mocking. So what else um, do we find on these uh, 62 fragments of Archestratus' poem. Uh, We can deduct that um, he's concentrated a lot on fish cooking. Fish uh, was more highly valued by chefs than meat because meat was closely associated with other rituals. Rituals of worship and sacrifice. So Greek culture associated fish eating quality fish as opposed to small fry with luxury and meat-eating with gods. Which, if you consider it, if you think about it, it comes to a stark contrast with the later Christian Europe, where fish is, is reserved for fast days. Archestratus cooks the fish simply, boiling, roasting, or grilling with light seasoning and oil added, if it's a quality fish. Freshness and quality are his watchwords. And these features Mustn't be damaged by strong sauces based on cheese and pungent herbs. His favorite fish tend to have firm textured and strongly flavored meat, rather than the mild tasting flesh like the white fish we are now used in French cooking as a vehicle for the sauces. He also shows much interest in eels, common, conger, and mari. He emphasizes flavor and the oil-fat content of the fish, where the taste and interest is to be found. There is much interest also in the texture of the fish, the different cuts in parts from head meat, fin, tail, and especially belly, as well as in the varieties of fish. There's a striking resemblance here on his approach, and the traditional fish dishes of the Basque country, which I find very, very interesting and heartening. Later on the program, we'll touch on some of Arqestratus' fish recipes. Here I want to emphasize also his presentation of fish has something in common with the Chinese approach as described in the modern manual of Yan Kit So, classic Chinese cookbook. Yan Kit, she was an incredible food historian and cookery expert. This comparison I do here, and uh, many experts have done before me, with the Far Eastern cuisine, are very appropriate. There's a holistic approach to mealtime, with emphasis on the balance, which is common to both cuisines. So China, we have yin and yang. In ancient Greece, and the ancient world, we had the humours. The four humours, blood, phlegm, black and yellow bile, were to be kept in the right proportion and quality. Hot, cold, wet and dry. You do this by eating foods that would provide that balance and the required qualities. Also, another another comparison I want to make here is the the cooking of archestratus is not sauce-based, and this is striking and to be contrasted with the strong flavors added to Roman foods. What we know through our main source of ancient Roman food from Apicius, as we've seen on the previous episode of the podcast, it was full of strong flavors and... Um, rich sauces, and lots and lots of herbs and ingredients, which of course stays nice and is great, but compare and contrast apicius pieces with Arquestratus. We have completely the opposite approach. Stronger flavors, though, were recommended at the beginning and the end of the meal, and that was uh, in the forms of olives, barley breads, small birds, and pickled sauce rum. In Arquestratus, Meats are prepared with equal simplicity and denied an to the essential juices. Some places that we know of his fragments that he recommends particular dishes. So we have Toroni in South Italy, which was Magna Graecia in the ancient world. He's uh, recommending shark belly steaks. In Olynthus, which is in modern day Greece in Chalkidiki, he recommends greyfish. In Eressus, which is in Lesbos Island, he recommends the barley, um, has the best barley for bread, and of course the wine. From Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul, he recommends uh, the fish bonito. In Thessaly, central Greece, he comments upon the emmer bread rolls, so breads made from emmer wheat. In ancient Phoenicia, in Byblos, where... Today's modern Lebanon, the wine. In Carthage, uh, he recommends Brim. From Lake Copaís, in, uh, uh, in modern-day central Greece, Eels. From the island of Samos, Tuna. From the seas of the northern Sicily, Tuna again. Here I would like to narrate a little made-up story. Um, thinking how Archestratus would have gone by on his various trips ar- around the Mediterranean on finding the best um, fish and the best ingredients for his book. So bear with me with this little uh, fantasy of mine. Two weeks, said uh, the captain, these trips of yours will take. it to Archestratus. Two weeks each way, Archestratus replied to the fat man. The man who accompanied Archestratus on this latest expedition of his, unwillingly to both of course, was a merchant of hides, skins and leather goods. A rather seedy-looking fat man, scouring for new markets in Scythia to sell his produce. An inexperienced Ladlab in other words, who was now finally ashore again. As was he disembarking, he embraced the captain, he embraced Archestratus and the rest of the crew. He hurried out of the boat, kneeled clumsily initially, then fell on the floor and lied belly down, stretching to cover the whole paved marina in front of him, where the crew and the baggage porters were supposed to unload the ship, grateful to reach homeland again, alive and in one piece. They've been out at sea, on board of the flat-bottomed, round-hulled, sail-powered Holkas, which is a type of ancient Greek cargo ship a sturdy vessel with large drafts for the best part of 80 days. Well, aside from the nights that they had spent in seaside market towns, of course. And the trip took so long because Arquestratus had other ideas. He knew the weeks were near enough the time he needed to discover and taste what eluded him in the previous trips to the Black Sea. The captain of the merchant vessel... Eutychia, which means good luck, was easily persuaded to change course due to his love for silver. And the merchant needed and wanted new markets and new customers, so it was in his interest to follow regardless. What Archestratus' main concern was is that he wanted to eat the freshest local fish in each town they stopped, the delicious specialty that the New Spring had brought to the coastal seas, what the local fishermen caught, and all before they were salted or pickled or made into garum. Archestratus wanted only the best in its simplest, purest form. That meant stopping numerous times along the route towards their final destination. That was the important Greek city of Phanagoria, strategically placed on the opening of Myotis Lake, nowadays the Azov Sea where it meets the Black Sea on the Chimerian Bosporus, where the numerous tribes of Scythians live. That was the interest of the merchant, the Scythians. They had gold and boundless wheat and even more horses than grains of sand. Surely, they would be the ideal market for his leather goods. For our ancient hipster hero, the only goal inside was the fresh fish of the town and the famous garum they produced. But... Phanagoria and her goods had to wait. Firstly, they've stopped on the island of Euboea, at the town of Chalkis, where the strong courage of the strait made her famous for her fresh fish. Then at the island of Lesbos for some vintage wine, equal to Ambrosia that the gods drink according to some. Then stopped to Byzantium for some bonito, with a further stop at Sinope a Greek colony in Pontus, the southern part of Black Sea, modern-day Turkey. Eighty whole days to return to Syracuse, in Sicily. Archestratus, though, didn't share the merchant's enthusiasm for reaching home. Already in his mind, he was planning the next gastronomic adventure for his forthcoming book about cookery, called... Well, he hasn't decided the title yet. Maybe Gastrology or Gastronomy? Anyway, he was planning his next adventure to the Carthaginian colony of Gadis, or Gadir, modern-day Cadiz), Beyond the edge of the known world, really. Beyond the pillars of Hercules. What fresh produce will he find there? Their incredible garum was already legendary. Twelve pints of the garum there cost the equivalent of 950 kilos of wheat, or 2,000 loaves of bread. And Archestratus couldn't wait to taste the fresh migrating Atlantic tuna. According to rumors, it was huge there, as big as a bull. That was the next trip, but what about the year after? The next summer, well, he was planning to hire a trading boat, all to himself this time, no greedy merchants, with its own crew and captain, and spent the whole season, five months, doing the length of the Mediterranean Sea circumnavigated it from one end to the other stopping on all the Greek cities but also the Carthaginian ones Etruscan and Egyptians too. That would be the most ambitious gastronomic voyage yet that no one else had dared to accomplish. So devoted to luxury he was that needed to seek out very carefully with great diligence whatever related to his stomach so he can write with the greatest accuracy where every kind of edible is to be tasted from at the right time in the greatest perfection. But all this had to wait next year. Maybe when this is done he can retell his adventures perhaps as an epic poem on the style of Homer or Hesiod. That would be an appropriate way to narrate it to the king of Syracuse next autumn. What! unknown pleasures await. So where does this leave us now? After a whole episode about uh, the first ever hipster foodie Gourmet do we know more about the Kestratus after this long speculating about his life and work? What's for sure is that his gastronomic rules were simple and in a sense ring as true today as they were 2,500 years ago. Good quality of raw ingredients. Harmonic combination of these said ingredients. Light sauces. Moderation in spices. No heavy sauces with spicy ingredients. And most importantly, the essence of a good company with every meal. A few good friends to share nature's bounty with. Three, maybe four friends around the table. No more. Okay, I think it's time for this Archestratus recipes I I promised you earlier on in the show. Generally speaking, the recipes here that are of interest um, are quite simple to make. I'll start with uh, the meat one. And actually, it's the only meat one that I've got for you. Uh, It calls for uh, roast hare. According to Archestratus, the best way to eat it is hot on the spit Sprinkled with a bit of sea salt. One of the recipes has a little bit of a, of an interesting sauce coming with it, and this one is made with uh, sautéed onions. So finely chop one onion, sauté it in olive oil, um, season season that with a bit of savory, a bit of rue, and a bit of celery seed and asafoetida. And if you want to find more about the herbs that uh, I'm mentioning above, where is rue from? What is it and uh, asafoetida, and about savoury and so on, uh, check my episode uh, about the herbs and the spices from the ancient world. Um, that was the episode about the silphium. So, we saute the onion, we season it with the herbs, and then we add red wine, about half a glass, and some fish sauce, according to taste, and a little olive oil. We reduce it, we carve the meat, which in this occasion is our roasted hair and we serve it uh, with a bit of sauce on the side. Another simple recipe from one of the fragments of Arquestratus is the following that calls for bonito wrapped in fig leaves, lightly seasoned with oregano. And then you bake it. Once you tie the fig leaves with uh, some string, you bake it under hot ashes. The advice is here, don't overcook it and basically just um, Add some uh, green olive oil at the end. Very, very simple. Another recipe is um, sea brim in cheese and oil, which sounds very weird. And it goes against all advice we've had from Arkestra so far, which is, uh, what simple, simple sauces, no cheeses and so on. Uh, well, this one calls for a brim, which you make a crust uh, with um, cheese, a bit of olive oil and cumin and some white wine vinegar. So in a sense, you grate um, lots of hard chips, cheese. Um, so for example, something like a pecorino sardo, you grate it, you mix it with a bit of olive oil, um, cumin, as much or as little as you find um, acceptable. So if you like the taste of cumin, yeah, just go for it by by all means. And then a bit of white wine vinegar. This mix, apply it with your hands and make it all, so all the ingredients bind together. You'll make a paste and you can spread it on the fish, on the flesh of the fish or the skin of the fish. So cover it both sides. So I get a whole sea brim, which is normally these uh, sea brims are about 500 grams, and tell the fishmonger to clean it. So you keep the head, you have the guts out, you season the guts inside with a bit of cumin and salt, And then you wrap it on this cheese paste that you made, both sides, leaving the head out. And then you bake it in a really hot oven for about 10 to 12 minutes. Hopefully without this crust running and melting away from the the fish. It's a very tricky thing and uh, needs a bit of uh, attention and uh, some experimentation really. Make it a few times to see... How we can stay together? It's it's very difficult. I will um, post this recipe and my tips analytically on uh, Patreon for you to see. Another delicious recipe that I made recently, and it's quite easy actually. This one calls for um, Toronian tuna. So Toroni was an ancient it was an ancient Greek um, settlement colony in the south of Italy, and this recipe calls for tuna from Toroni. And um, basically mix it with, um, you're making a sort of crust with herbs, with fresh uh, chopped herbs, a bit of cumin, and then you simply bake it. And then you sprinkle a bit of uh, green olive oil and uh, some uh, vinegar. And you serve it with a salad, with a fresh uh, green salad. So I take the fillet of tuna and uh, I finally chop uh, some herbs, whatever I have in hand. So let's say parsley, fresh parsley, fresh coriander, fresh mint, uh, maybe some celery leaf. So I take all this, I chop them finely, I mix them with a bit of breadcrumbs and a few sea salt flakes. And then I add some uh, cumin, Uh, not cumin seeds, but cumin powder. So I make this um, sort of crust, sort of fresh herb crust. I press it on the fish, on the fish steak, on the tuna steak, and then I bake it in the oven for, again, 10 minutes or so. Then simply sprinkle with a bit of vinegar, white wine vinegar, since the ancients didn't have lemon, so I put some nice white wine vinegar, and then serve it with a nice uh, green salad. Again, this is going to be another recipe which I'm going to post uh, very soon on my Patreon page for you to see. The passage uh, from the fragment uh, we have in Athenaeus about the brim in cheese and oil goes like this. Bake brim at Seaside Carthage. First, rinse it well. You will see a good big one in Byzantium too, with a body the size of a round shield. Deal with it whole. When you have taken it and coated it well all over with cheese and oil, hang it in a hot clay oven and then bake it through. Sprinkle with cumin-rubbed salt and gray-green oil drenching it generously with a divine liquid. And that's it. I hope I gave you some inspiration, and for more information, stay tuned and keep checking uh, my Patreon page. I hope uh, orchestra's trips and gastronomic adventures then weren't in vain. Although nothing survived of his life and works, but a few fragments, I would like to think that... Um, His legend is very much alive, and his uh, pilgrimage pretty much picked up again in our modern age by countless passionate people, who I may call um, foodie hipsters in zest, of course, but in true style, they are the worthy successors of the father of gastronomy. After all, why else you travel far and wide to try all these exciting morsels of uh, mouthgasms and get to a fish market to check the produce if not subconsciously where and invoking the spirit of Orkestratus. I want to end here saying that if there is a place and a people that Orkestratus' spirit survives intact, I think I have to nominate the Basque people. Most notably in and around San Sebastian. Their whole raison d'être is food. To eat delicious food, to have the taste of the freshest local produce in their mouth day in, day out. The passion which they exhibit on their choice of the regional ingredients, the seasonality and the genius of the simplicity in which the produce is cooked, no heavy sauces, no millions of herbs and spices either, bears striking similarity with Archestratus principles. I rarely met people so committed to the quality of their food as the Bascar. Thank you for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode you'll find the rest of the series on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. I would like to ask for your help uh, as little or as much as you can and uh, donate uh, kindly on my Patreon page called uh, the Delicious Legacy there. Um so you can help me create uh, the podcast more often and dedicate my time for more research. And of course, uh, get it out to you quicker and with lots and lots of uh, perks and extras. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.